0: The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Good morning. Welcome to Know Your Bible. We're glad you're back today. We're going to try to answer as many of your questions as we can today. Uh, And that's what we do on this program. If you're a first time viewer let me explain. Uh, We're here to help people understand their Bible and support. What we found was the easiest way to do that was just ask people what they'd like to know about the Bible. Uh, instead of us deciding what you ought to know, we let you tell us what you'd want to know. So you, there's a phone number, website on the screen at all times. Uh, you can call and one of our operators will write your question down for us or you can log on and word it yourself and we'll get that as uh, quickly as we can. Uh, uh, we're always a little bit behind because we get so many questions and we have to put closed captioning on and a few things so we won't answer it today, but we'll get to it as quickly as we can. So any kind of question you have about directly about the Bible or maybe something going on in your uh home or household or work or current events or whatever that you wonder what's the Bible principle on that? What's uh What's the Bible say about that moral topic that we're discussing in school right now? Uh, We'll try to find an answer for you. So uh, use the phone number of the website, get in touch with us, tell us what you'd like us to talk about on Know Your Bible. Let me introduce my partner, Toby Levering. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, Steve. Glad you're here and studied up and ready to go. And we're going to open with a question for our viewers. They always get one to start. Uh, Who was nicknamed a rock? There was somebody in the Bible that Jesus called the rock. And we're going to i uh, give you an answer to that at the end of the program, we'll see if you know that little bit of Bible trivia. And Toby drew the first question today, so get us started.
1: And this one is a doozy, okay. and it is not an easy one. Okay. I want to be baptized, viewer says, but I'm afraid it would be a lie because I am living with a man I am not married to. I want to give my whole heart to Christ, but do I have to give up my relationship in order to be baptized? Well. I appreciate the spirit of the question, and uh, I will say you're definitely going to have to make some changes if you want to follow Jesus. That's not unlike when anyone decides to follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus is uh, a bit of a rabble-rouser. He, he likes to shake things up in our lives, So when you make Him Lord, He's not comfortable. I mean, He loves you just as you are, but He d- loves you too much to let you stay that way. He wants things in your life that are going to bless you and help you in the long run. Uh, When you're giving yourself to to Christ, when you become a Christian, in fact, uh, when you look at the Bible, someone should ask you at the point you want to be a Christian, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? And that word there means master, ruler, commander. In other words, you're saying, I lay down my will in exchange for what His will is. Now, on the matter of uh, living with someone and, and before you're married, and having uh, relations with them, that, that you're someone that's not your husband, uh, that is very clear. Scripture says that we should flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And, of course, we understand that when we come to Christ, he gets all of it, body, heart, soul and mind, not just one part. Jesus doesn't do compartmentalization very well. So coming to Christ uh, before you know being baptized, part of one thing that we talk about on this program is the idea of repentance. And repentance is a word we don't use a whole lot today, but that simply means a heart change. And how do we know a heart change happens? Well we know a heart change happens when behavior changes. In other words, I have small children. Sometimes they'll say to me, I'm sorry, but then they'll keep doing the thing that they said they're sorry for. And sometimes they have really sincerely mean it, and they want to change. And uh, that's the idea of repentance, is when we feel truly sorry for the things which we've done in such a way that it affects us, uh, how we live. So if you're going to re- be baptized, you need to repent of sin. <clears throat> uh, if you're living with someone, I would say you need to have a, a separation or just... Uh, maybe the minister who's baptizing you would be willing to perform a marriage ceremony, or uh, uh, so if you can't, you know, do that, go down to the courthouse or whatever. Um, but make that right because God says the marriage bed should be pure. Uh, that that marriage between a man and a woman is where sexual relations are to take place. So I'm going to tell you, kindly, gently, firmly, if you want to become a Christian, uh, you got to take care of the the parts of your life that are not in. Uh, accordance with the scriptures and what Jesus' will is. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. And Paul here is talking about godly sorrow. And he says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And he goes on to, he's talking to the church at Corinth, but I want to point this out. He says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. You see what he's saying there? He said, I know that you were sorry. I knew that you had godly sorrow because you were ready to take some definitive action. Some things begin to change in your life. So I hope you'll consider that carefully as you consider being (coughs) baptized. All right, thank you, Toby. Um, interesting
0: question here about Adam and Eve. I think all the fourth grade boys in the audience will like this one. Uh, The viewer wants to know, if Adam and Eve were first, why are they always pictured with belly buttons? All right. Well, some of you may not have ever wondered about that question, but uh, it's a good question. And I've learned to always check my facts first. So when they said they're always pictured with belly buttons, I thought, well, I better make sure that's true. Uh, so I went to Google Images and looked up Adam and Eve, and I found two kinds of pictures. This is all the great art of people that ever <laughs> painted pictures of Adam and Eve. And I found two kinds. One, where the fig leaf obscured their belly button, where I, I couldn't see it. Uh, and all the rest of them really did have belly buttons. So in all the art that I you know, was on Google Image, which is quite voluminous, Uh, The painters really did paint belly buttons in there, so I I agree with the viewer, that's how they're pictured, but if you think about it, they were created from the earth and from the rib, Uh, they had no umbilical cord, they didn't need one, they didn't come from a physical mother, so why would they have a belly button? Well, that's the question. The the answer is obviously not in the Bible. Uh, God did it how He wanted and I don't know whether they had belly buttons or not. Uh, I tend to think they did. And the reason I think they did was because they wouldn't have needed one physically. They wouldn't have had to have one. But when they had kids they would need to have one because kids say what's this and want to know and on, you can always say well looky daddy's got one or mommy's got one and that help explains it to kids so that's my only reason for thinking god probably gave them one uh so they could explain it to their children but <laughs> our viewers viewers right they probably didn't need a belly button but uh, Maybe we ought to go on to something different here, just a well, tad was, more important.
1: Uh, that's the—that's a question where you really could have used some visuals on the slide there, just oh, also. <laughs> I,
0: I actually was going to put one up to show, and I couldn't find any G-rated ones. <laughs> <laughs> everything on google image showed some stuff that i figured we probably shouldn't show
1: you gotta be careful (laughs) all right well let me move into one that's a little more um uh what's the word i want here a little more a little more profound um are you once saved always saved all right well uh (laughs) My answer to that question is it depends on what you mean by it. Uh, In the typical sense, most people when they say, are you once saved, always saved, it's a doctrine that people believe that once you become a Christian, uh, you're always a Christian, you can't lose your salvation, there's no way you can undo (laughs) what God has done, uh, and uh, I don't believe that, and I don't believe Scripture teaches that. Now. Uh, If if person means by that in the general sense, can you be secure in your salvation? Can you be uh, uh, secure in the hope that you have? And and know, if you're in Christ, where you're going, where you're going to end up. And I think, yes, in that sense, you ought to be secure and you ought to be very bold uh, because of your security in Christ. Usually, people get that on one of two extremes. Uh, they they believe one saved, always saved in the doctrinal sense, which just means they just sort of get their ticket punched and believe whatever they have to do. And then they just kind of live how they want. And then they think on judgment day, they say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I You know, way back... Uh, Forty years ago, I I uh, said a prayer, or I did a thing, or I went to church, or or I went to church, you know, with uh, with my family, or I went on Easter and Christmas, or whatever their list is, uh, and no, and the other extreme of that is uh, people who become Christians, and it seems like they never quite believe it. They're never quite sure of their salvation, and they you know if you ask them if they're going to heaven, they always hope so, and they're. They're always doubting and fearful and consumed with guilt and all of that. I don't think either of those two extremes is what God has called us to be. So, yes, we should be confident in Christ. But at the same time, we have to understand we got to be, be faithful to Him. Uh, scriptures are very clear that one can come to Christ... And lose his or her salvation. Not that it's uh, taken away from them, but that they give it up, that they walk away, turn away from Christ. One of the saddest verses in the Bible is John six verse 66, which says, "At that time, many left, many turned away from him, and no longer followed him." So there were people at one time, even in Jesus' day, that followed Jesus, and then decided that his teachings were too hard, that he couldn't take it. And I think that still happens today. Uh, so. God doesn't desire anyone to perish, uh, but your free will does not stop when you're in Christ. When you choose Christ, uh, you can also unchoose Christ. You choose to repent of sin, you can choose to go back into sin. Uh, and so in that sense, uh, you can um, lose your salvation if you choose to give it up. Let me give you some Bible verses. Uh, not all of these are on the screen, so I'm just going to give those to you to look up. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, Paul wrote... You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And you say, hey, here's people trying to earn their way to salvation. They've <coughs> fallen away. They forgot what the whole point of it was all about. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20 says, If they've escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our <coughs> Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than at the beginning. So he's saying, I mean, there are people back in Paul's day, clearly or Peter's day, that were clearly choosing Christ and then going back to the ways of the world, and certainly they wouldn't uh, uh, remain in Christ if they choose to leave it. Let me give you one verse. This is on your screen, First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Paul writes, "These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come." So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. (coughs) Scripture is very clear. that We've got to be diligent in our salvation and make choices every day to serve Christ and to live under His Lordship.
0: Thank you, Toby. (coughs) take just a moment to talk about a good way to study the Bible and we uh, offer some Bible study materials that are a great way to get a foundation of understanding in the Bible uh, those materials will come to you free of charge in the mail and you can complete them at your own speed and spend as much time or as little time as you want each day or week working on your uh, lessons and studying spending time in the Bible hopefully it'll increase as you go along and you get more familiar with your Bible and you will get where you have a regular habit of Bible study is another good thing that these do. Uh, you see the eight lessons on the screen now that are part of the first introductory course. Uh, just a good overall non-denominational look at the Bible. starts with two very basic things, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Understanding those two big parts of your Bible and a lot, to tell you the truth a lot of the questions we get on Know Your Bible come because people don't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So those two lessons are very important. Uh, will help you a great deal in understanding your Bible. So once you get through those eight we've got some more advanced courses that go much more in detail into certain books and certain topics. Uh, we've got a lot of Bible study materials to help you keep studying the Bible for a long time. Uh, so give us a call or log on to the website number there. Uh, tell us you'd like that free course and we'll get you one in the mail very quickly. I've had thousands of people take us up on that free offer over the years and find out that they've learned a lot about the Bible. So, give us a call or log on. All right, question about praying. Viewer wants to know, when praying, do you have to say your prayer out loud? Uh, Do you have to put your hands together? Okay, they're asking about the mechanics of prayer, the position, uh, whether you say it out loud or silent or whatever. Uh, The Bible just doesn't give us instructions about that. There is one part where Jesus talks about how to pray, and I'm going to read that to kind of set the tone. It's in Matthew 6, 6. And Jesus said, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. All right. Some people think take that literally and say, well, you ought to pray in a closet. Uh, that's not what Jesus was saying. He said when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. The reason the hypocrites pray is to be seen by other men. They had certain hours of the day when they <coughs> prayed. Uh, they would make sure they were right on the corner of Main Street and First Street uh, while everybody was watching at that hour and they'd stop and say, oh my, it's time to pray. And they'd make a big deal out of it and they'd pray out loud and everybody would think, oh, how pious they are and all that. Jesus said, if that's what they want, they got their reward. Uh, But I'm not listening to them basically is what He said. Uh, He said, when you pray, go somewhere secret, go where people can't hear you and just talk to your Father. That's the basics. Now, in the Bible we've got examples of people praying standing and prostrate and kneeling and uh, all kinds of different ways. So evidently position doesn't matter a whole lot. Uh, Some pray with their hands raised, some don't. Uh, We've got all kinds of positions mentioned. Uh, Depends on the situation. Uh, If you're asked specifically about should your hands be together, I think that comes from when we're teaching little children to pray. Uh, that helps them focus, uh, that keeps their hands still, (laughs) gives them something to do with them. Uh, We teach them to bow their heads and close their eyes so they're not thinking about everything else in the room. Uh, If they don't do that, they'll thank God for everything in the room. (laughs) They'll they'll look around and name every picture on the wall probably. Uh, So those are just things we teach kids, but just keep going back to Jesus' point. It's not about anybody else seeing it. It's about you talking to the Father. So uh, the best illustration I ever found of that is is an old prayer that I've read a couple of times and uh, people always find it uh, humorous and informative I think. And a lot of people have wanted copies in the past. These days you can just Google your own copy. Uh, Google Cyrus Brown's Prayer and you'll find it on the internet. But let me read it to you. I think it's interesting. Uh, The Prayer of Cyrus Brown. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. No, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and rapt and upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Slow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front, with both thumbs pointing toward the ground," said Reverend Dr. Blunt. "'Last year I fell in Hodgkin's well, head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a sticking up and my head a-pintin' down. And I made a prayer right then and there, best prayer I ever said, the prayinest prayer I ever prayed a-standin' on my head.'" <laughs> so a lot of experts may tell you exactly how to pray, but I think Cyrus Brown's got it figured out. <laughs> it's, it's about you talking to God. So uh, can't doubt his sincerity. <laughs> <laughs> he had experience. All right, enough poetry. Well, hey, let's get yeah, another I don't, ha, I don't
1: have a fun poem to That's read, right. but this it's one right. is a, this is a tough one. Uh, explain Hebrews chapter six, verses four through six. Does it mean a person who walks away from God? Can never come back. All right, well, to help you out, I think we need to look at the verse. So let's look at the verse on the screen. Um, it says, It is impossible for those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, who have, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Um, So my uh, answer and interpretation to this question is that uh, you need to weigh, first of all, how you interpret this verse against the rest of the Bible. And there are so many other places where Scripture is clear about... uh, (coughs) It's never too late. You can always repent. You can always turn back to the Lord. Uh, it's never beyond His His reach of His grace and His mercy. But that repentance must be sincere. And I think that's what the author here is getting at. Um, if you look at the verse in context, what it's saying is uh, the writer is expressing real frustration with uh, these these uh, Christians who have grown to a point, and it seems like now they're wanting to sort of go back to the basic teachings, and he's really frustrated with that. And he's saying, you know, we shouldn't be talking about all these basic things. We need to be going on to weightier, meatier matters. And in that context is where he says that <clears throat> that those who have you know progressed this far and they have this understanding of what it means to be in Christ and and the, all of the blessings that you receive, and then to go back to a very basic understanding and uh, to to fall back into sin, and and just to try to go through that whole process again, it, well that's impossible. I mean you you've you have already been through the spiritual maturity to a point you need to keep progressing forward in your growth in Christ and that's what I believe uh, the interpretation of this scripture is that not that one can't repent but that you know the point of the Christian life is to make continual growth and proce- and progress as you mature in Christ and um, don't Backslide or waffle. Don't don't get to a point and then go back to the very basic beginnings and and start living <coughs> in the old ways and start doing things you used to do when you were first come to Christ. So uh, don't backslide. Don't waffle. Grow consistently, <coughs> continually, and daily. And I believe that's what this verse verses are trying to say. If you look at it in the context of that chapter and all of Scripture. All right.
0: Thank you, <coughs> We don't get many questions about the Song of Solomon, but this viewer asks the big question, what does the Song of Solomon mean? Uh, Well, the Song of Solomon is a book in the Old Testament uh, written by Solomon. It may be called in your Bible the Song of Songs is one thing the Jews called it. Uh, And if you read it, it seems like a physical romantic love song, a physical romantic love song or love poem. Uh, Some people say well no it's surely got to be an allegory about how Christ loves us and try to make something complicated out of it. I think it's best to take it at face value, uh, understanding that it is a poem. It's poetic language and uh, Solomon was quite the poet obviously from reading this poem. Uh, But if you take that into consideration that it is a poem. I think it's best to just understand it as what it is. It's a poem about the beauty of marriage. Uh, It's obviously about the physical part of marriage, a whole lot of it. Uh, It kind of goes through the three stages, if you will, of the courtship and then the early days of his marriage and then the maturing of the marriage and in later years uh, how his spouse is still beautiful and all of that. Uh, I think that's what it is, Solomon writing a love song to his beloved and uh, nothing wrong with that. God created uh, romantic love and sex and all that and it ought to be celebrated in the right place. The the marriage bed is honorable. So I think that's what it is and that's the way it ought to be read and it's a very interesting love song, (laughs) love poem. So read it that way and learn about a few things.
1: Yeah, you know, some people think well, you know, God doesn't <laughs> want us to enjoy life, but no, he created the the marriage bed yep. at, for the enjoyment of husband and wife in the right context. is such a blessing and uh, Christians shouldn't shy away from it. That's uh, what Solomon said. <laughs> that's says. what Solomon was. Yeah. Alright, <laughs> let me I
0: invite you to visit the Church of Christ near you. We are kept on the air by Churches of Christ. and like to mention a few each week today. Let me mention one in Moline, Illinois. Uh, Moline is a group of folks up there in the, the Quad Cities that help keep us on the air. and We appreciate it. You can see the information there. They meet uh, together at 10.30 on Sunday morning for worship. Uh great group of folks. Do a lot of good in the community. Uh, I know you'd uh, be warmly welcomed if you visited there. Uh, if you're looking for a church home, you'd find a group of people that uh, study and think about uh, the Bible a lot like we do here on Know Your Bible. So visit them or anywhere in your community. There may be a Church of Christ i let them know that you appreciate the program. All right, Toby, death question.
1: Yes, right? a viewer asked the question, does it say <clears throat> anywhere in the Bible what death will feel like? Well, the answer to that is no, it does not say what death will feel like. Um, uh, there, In the uh, first century world, of course, they often kind of use the phrase gone asleep or fallen asleep to mean a person had died. Kind of like we say today, a person has gone on or they've passed away. Um, there's lots of expressions to kind of convey the idea that death has occurred, and um, I think the idea of falling asleep. Of course, if you've ever been to a, a viewing at a funeral. You, you see the body there, and they just it looks simply like they're asleep. I remember one of my very earliest memories of going to I think my great grandmother's funeral, and that. That was just, it looked, I was very young at the time and didn't understand. It just looked to me like she was simply sleeping. Um, and I think the idea is probably, obviously it's not based on experience, just my opinion. But I think death is simply a, a, a state where we trans, you know, go from the living to the eternal. And that death is just a, a transformation experience. And it's probably like something like going to sleep. You know, you don't exactly know the moment that it happened, but it does happen. And when it happens, uh, you can't pinpoint the exact timing of it, but uh, we know that it happens for every person. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, 28. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those to those who are waiting for him. <coughs> So, if it's going to happen, how it's going to feel like, or what it's going to feel like, the Bible doesn't say.
0: Okay. One <laughs> last question here. I think we have time for it. I know we have time for it. Mm-hmm. viewer wants to know, <laughs> are aliens coming to get us? And my answer is no. Uh, but someone from another world is coming to get mm-hmm. us. Uh, But that world is the spiritual world. Absolutely no mention in the Bible of other worlds or other creations or universes or anything. (laughs) Earth seems to be it. That's what God created and that's all He talks about. So I'm not worried at all about the aliens coming to get us. Uh, But Jesus is coming back from a spiritual world. We ought to be ready for that. All right, trivia question. Who was nicknamed the Rock? Uh, Jesus gave Peter that... uh, actually gave Simon that nickname in John 1:42 his real name was Simon Bar Jonah son of Jonah it just says his daddy was Jonah and Jesus said I'm going to call you Cephas which means in the Aramaic Peter which is the rock so we're glad you've been with us today we're out of time for any more questions but we'll come back next week and answer as many as we can <coughs> till then you have a great week the sand